<clears throat> this is the first day of this March, March and April 2022 seven-day session. And I'm going to begin today reading from a, a book uh, entitled Silent Illumination by Guo Gu. read some from this once before, but <clears throat> it occurred to me that this might be a really good way, a good thing to look at as we enter into the first few days of the Sashin. It's a little bit about him in the back of the book. Uh, <clears throat> Guogu is a Chan teacher, author, Buddhist scholar founder of the Tallahassee Chan Center in Florida. <clears throat> That's at Florida State University uh, is where he teaches. He's a uh, Dharma successor of Master Sheng Yen. began practicing when he was a child in 1972 in Taiwan and uh, came to this country in 1980 and began to study with Sheng Yen, uh, ordained as a monk in 1991 and uh, became the master's personal attendant and assistant. <clears throat> in 1995, he experienced his first breakthrough and was given permission to teach Chan independently representing Master Sheng Yen at his home monastery and in different parts of the world. It says in 2000, wanting to bring Buddhism beyond monastic walls, Guo Gu left monkhood and re-entered the world. Uh, he received a PhD in Buddhist studies from Princeton and began teaching as a professor at Florida State University in Tallahassee professor of Buddhist studies. He's written several books and done translations of a number of Sheng Yen's books. I guess he goes by the name Jimmy Yu uh, in his non-monastic life. And he has a center down there, I think, in Tallahassee. So again, the title of this book is Silent Illumination, and the subtitle is A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. And uh, the book begins with a lot of good material about the foundations for the practice of silent illumination. Uh, silent illumination is the Chinese term that the, ja the Japanese call for what the Japanese call shikantaza. But uh, a lot of what he says applies to any Zen practice, any meditation practice, really. So whether you're doing shikantaza or working on a koan or following or counting the breath, I think there's a lot here that can be very helpful. So I'm going to dive in here. He says, 
Chan teaches that we are already free. We are Buddhas. At the same time, we're bogged down by delusion, emotional afflictions, and negative habit patterns, so we don't realize our freedom. I think everybody here understands this point. Of course, it's hard for people to have faith that they are Buddha because we're so wrapped up in those delusions and emotional afflictions and habit patterns. He says an analogy for this is the room that you occupy right now. The room, its spaciousness, this zendo we're sitting in is a very spacious room, cannot be defined by the furniture contained in it or the presence or absence of people. Nor is the nature of the room affected by its level of cleanliness. Similarly, our Buddha nature is not defined by the presence or absence of our emotional afflictions. Like the spacious room, Buddha nature has always been empty, free of disturbance. At the same time, Buddha nature is not a thing apart from emotional afflictions. It is through the vexations of our lives that we realize freedom. By working with our thoughts, feelings, and mental states, we come to realize that we are the dynamic expression of Buddha nature. Just on a very basic level, how many of us would have come to this practice if we weren't dissatisfied with our lives as they are? Sometimes think that those happy, blissful people who seem to have no trouble whatsoever in life are actually unlucky in a way if they have no motivation to see more deeply into the nature of the self, into who we are. But beyond that, all the problems that arise for us, the negative states, painful anxiety, fear, jealousy, all those, all those states are what we have to work with. It really drives home the way the self operates. There's a lot we can learn if we can avoid repressing them, repressing those feelings, or escaping them. There are lots of ways to escape. The classic, of course, is drinking, but many, many drugs and many, many habits. Ways we find to turn away from what's right in front of us. He says, our true mind has no delineating borders and it has infinite potential. We have the ability to respond to the needs of all beings creatively, immeasurably. Just as space is not the result of our moving the furniture around the room, 
Awakening is not something that we gain from our efforts in practice. Here he has practice in quotation marks. If awakening were gained from practice, then it would be just an additional piece of furniture. Whatever can be gained is also subject to loss. Our Buddha nature has nothing to do with having or lacking, gaining or losing. Even people who've had some insight can easily objectify their experience and make it a piece of furniture in the room. He says, yet by working with the furniture, fixing the dilapidated pieces, recycling the old ones, and clearing up the clutter, it's more likely that we'll recognize the spaciousness of the room. The pieces of furniture in our heart-mind are all the ever-changing constructs, narratives, knowledge, and personal experiences. For the purpose of this book, I will use mind or heart-mind to refer to the workings of our whole being. While our modern sensibilities tell us that body and mind are separate, that there are distinct functions of heart, brain, and mind, in Chan usage, all of these functions are interconnected, synonymous. As for the furniture, there is a vitality to their transiency where nothing is fixed and everything is possible. Furniture can be rearranged and recycled endlessly. We may take a particular piece of furniture as who we are, but there really is no permanent me apart from our mental construct of it. Of course, even our mental construct of it is not permanent. There is no self that experiences, there's just moment-to-moment experiencing. The problem is really not with the furniture, but with our rigid fixation on it. We are attached to all the things we experience and have allowed them to define, shape, and manipulate us. And of course, this is a deep, long, lifelong habit of identifying with what comes up for us in our mind, in our body. in imagining some sort of self. You can't really think your way out of it. We have to look directly, to look beyond thinking, patiently, devotedly, often for a long, long time.
Otherwise, as he says, all the things we experience, we allow them to define, shape, and manipulate us. He says, when we fully appreciate the natural expression of mind as experiencing, all things become alive, fluid, intimately connected to one another. This is the realization of no self or selflessness. When we're completely with whatever we're doing, when we're experiencing things purely, and you don't need to be enlightened for this to happen, then we sense what it's like, this life of no self, life of selflessness. Everything flows freely. Everything's vivid and alive. We ourselves seem spontaneous, direct, says, the true nature of our mind is free. This freedom is also our true nature. Thoughts and passing emotions liberate themselves moment after moment after moment. We don't have to do anything to make them disappear. They liberate themselves if we let go of what we're grasping. I read somewhere that any strong emotional reaction sets off a chemical cascade that lasts about 90 seconds. But because we grasp onto whatever it is that upset us and turn it over and over again in our mind, of course, for us, it lasts much, much longer. But we don't have to suppress anything. We don't have to push anything out of the way. As he says, we don't have to do anything. They liberate themselves if we let go of what we're grasping. He goes on, our true nature has infinite potential. It is able to respond to circumstances and the needs of all beings. Expressed as the natural functioning of the mind, our experiencing is both empty and aware. It is able to respond in any and all ways, freely and dynamically, adapting and accommodating to all conditions with effortless flexibility. Just as our eyes see and ears hear because that is their inherent function, Buddha nature simply experiences moment to moment because this is its inherent function. I'm always struck by the way that Whatever is in front of us appears to us visually. Don't need to intend to look at it. It's there. Sound happens. We don't intend to hear the sound. It's automatic. We hear it. It's the functioning of our nature. He says, when we are aligned with our Buddha nature, we are like a mirror, selflessly reflecting images before it. We respond to complex situations and interact with others effortlessly. And the reason we can function perfectly well without a, without a fixed, rigid sense of self or experiencer 
is because in reality there is no such thing and there never was. Self as a permanent entity doesn't exist. In our confusion, we think that the objects of our mind, thoughts and feelings arise from the I that is the subject standing in opposition to the rest of the world. Our attachment to a fixed sense of I is unnecessary. We can actually function better without it, adapting to changes when faced with obstacles. This reminds me of a story about Tongan Roshi. The head monk when Roshi Kaplow was at uh, Hoshinji, later on a outstanding Zen teacher, died just a few years ago. He was uh, climbing uh, in the hills or in the cliffs above his temple when he fell, free fell. He would have died except uh, he smashed into a tree limb on his way down and I guess he just uh, may have broken his hip and had some difficulty afterwards, but he lived and continued teaching. He said that when he was falling, he realized ego not necessary. Gogu says, but when we fixate on this sense of me, I, and mine, and inject it into our daily interactions with others, we hinder the natural expression of our Buddha nature as experiencing and cause suffering for ourselves and others. Why? Because it's contrary to how we actually are, free and open, wondrously changing and with great potential. To understand silent illumination is to appreciate our true nature as already free, the natural awakening of who we are. The reason we don't feel liberated is because we attach to these notions of me, I, and mine. We have taken our thinking and feeling, the objects of experiencing as who we are. The truth is, if we fill a glass with murky water and then we set the glass down and allow the silt to settle, the water naturally becomes clear. The nature of water is originally clear. It only appears to be temporarily muddied by the silt that it contains. This is who we are. Clarity has always been present. This is called intrinsic awakening, or what I call natural awakening. Usually, realization of this truth happens suddenly. This is experiential awakening. This is the experience of seeing our nature. Water holds the silt particles without resisting their presence or changing its true nature, and the same is true of the heart-mind. If it did not have freedom as its intrinsic nature, how could it liberate itself? In Buddhism, when intrinsic awakening is experientially realized, it is called selfless wisdom or prajna. Because this wisdom operates freely, 
without self-referential obstructions, it responds skillfully to the needs of sentient beings. This is called great compassion. Thus wisdom and compassion are the same thing, just expressed differently. They are inseparable. <clears throat> we can see for ourselves that when we're not full of ourselves, when we're not self-conscious, when we're not thinking about how we appear to other people, we become more available. When we're not thinking of what we're going to say in the middle of a conversation, but listening to the person speaking to us, then we can hear, respond, notice. The so-called self just gums up the works, gets in the way. Many people feel discouraged because they haven't had an experiential awakening, as he calls it, and been practicing for many, many years. But their practice that they have done has emptied them out. The silt has settled to some degree. They are more present. They are more available. Need to have faith in the journey. Faith in the process. Just keep letting things go. See and let go. <clears throat> Going to skip ahead a bit and uh, move on to the next chapter, which is entitled Starting from Where We Are. Chan offers no particular fixed way to practice. Of course, by Chan, he means Zen. It's just the Chinese term, <clears throat> actually. comes before there ever was Zen. There was Chan. <clears throat> the, only <clears throat> the only purpose of practice is to uproot our deep-seated emotional afflictions and negative habitual patterns that conceal our true awakened nature and at the same time develop our true potential. Yet over the centuries, Chan masters have developed numerous skillful means to help people. Before we discuss the actual practices, we need to understand and develop a conviction regarding our true nature, our Buddha nature. We also need to learn to expose, embrace, and transform the emotional afflictions and negative habitual patterns the root of which is self-grasping. It is the self in all its manifestations that conceals our true nature. We must begin here to appreciate the teachings so we can live the truth of our intrinsic freedom. <clears throat> Emotional afflictions, negative habitual patterns, Sounds a little conceptual until we're in the middle of them. Discouragement, embarrassment, all the muck we get caught up in. What he proposes, and he'll go into this more deeply. <clears throat> 
is not that we push it away, not that we suppress it, but that we expose it, we see it. Even says embrace it and then transform those afflictions. <clears throat> goes on, Buddha nature, our true nature, is simply freedom. It's not a thing. If it were, then it would have a before and an after. It would be subject to birth and death and would be either permanent or impermanent. Buddha nature is inconceivable. We too are inconceivable. This inconceivability is, is that right here and right now we are free. Without any effort on our own part, we hear, we see, we feel. We have everything. Buddha nature is inconceivable. We too are inconceivable. We are Buddha nature through and through. It says Buddha nature also means the potential for Buddhahood in all beings. The word Buddha means awake. So this means we all have the potential for awakening. Mahayana scriptures <clears throat> provide the analogy of a womb, and the Sanskrit word is Tathagagarbha, within which a Buddha resides. Tathagata is an epithet for Buddha, and Garbha means womb or storehouse. So Tathagagarbha means Buddha in the womb. But Tathagata literally means one who has thus come and is thus gone, or simply as if come, as if gone. While Buddhas may seem to have come and gone, they are nearly neither coming nor going. They are not born and do not die. Birth and death are temporary displays of causes and conditions. The same is true for us. Our true nature is beyond birth and death. <clears throat> potential is possibility. If we lack the potential for awakening, then practice would be useless. An apple seed under the right conditions produces an apple tree because the potential already exists in the seed. Cause leads to effect. The effect already exists in the cause. All beings, even murderers, have the same potential for awakening. We are all, poss we are all possibilities. Then he tells the story of Angulamala, a man in the Buddha's time who <clears throat> ended up for various, there's <laughs> a long story, ended up uh, on a mission to murder a thousand people and bring the uh, fingers to his teacher. <clears throat> and uh, he'd gotten up to 999 when he encountered the Buddha and ran towards him with his sword intending to finish the job, but he couldn't catch up. He couldn't, although the Buddha appeared not to be moving, he couldn't catch up. And Gulamala finally called out to the Buddha in frustration, stop. And the Buddha replied, And Gulamala, I have already stopped for the sake of all beings. It is you who have not stopped. <clears throat> and evidently that was enough to 
turn him, became a monk with Shakyamuni, and eventually an arhat, a liberated person. Gogu says, Buddha nature is the nature of emptiness. It can take the form of a child. It can also manifest as an agulamala who does horrible things as a result of certain causes and conditions. But, in, but amid delusion and conditioning, Buddha nature is never lost. <clears throat> in the face of all the difficulties that we experience, Each one of us tries to live the best way we can, responding to whatever conditions we find ourselves in. Those who are suffering and harming others are simply giving form to the workings of Buddha nature in delusion. When we're awakened, Buddha nature expresses itself as wisdom. When we're deluded, it appears as ignorance. We must awaken to who we are in order to embody the truth of our Buddha nature amid the complexities of life. We can be extremely disturbed, have extremely damaging habit patterns, and still find our way. One of read a little something, an article that was published in the New York Times in uh, 2011 about uh, a woman named Marsha Linehan. Some people know who she is. She's uh, actually the uh, inventor, the creator of a form of therapy known as DMT. Now all of a sudden the words have gone out of my mind. Oh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. <clears throat> and uh, it turns out it's it's the one form of therapy that's been found to actually work with people with extreme uh, mental problems, such as borderline personality disorder. And it turns out that uh, she herself. Uh, Probably that's the right diagnosis for her. She uh, was a very disturbed teenager living in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Picking up here in this article, she the article, by the way, is by a man named Benedict Carey, published in June of 2011. She learned the central tragedy of severe mental illness the hard way, banging her head against the wall of a locked room. She arrived at the Institute of Living <clears throat> on March 9, 1961, at age 17, and quickly became the sole occupant of the seclusion room on the unit known as Thompson II for the most severely ill patients. The staff saw no alternative. The girl attacked herself habitually, burning her wrists with cigarettes, 
slashing her arms, her legs, her midsection, using any sharp object she could get her hands on. <clears throat> the seclusion room, a small cell with a bed, a chair, and a tiny barred window had no such weapon, yet her urge to die only deepened. So she did the only thing that made any sense to her at the time, banged her head against the wall and later the floor, hard. She says, my whole experience of these episodes was that someone else was doing it. It was like, I know this is coming. I'm out of control. Somebody help me. Where are you, God? She said, I felt totally empty, like the Tin Man. I had no way to communicate what was going on, no way to understand it. Talks a little bit about her childhood. She was a, an excellent student, a natural on the piano. Father was an oil man, mother in the junior league. Says people who knew the Linehans at the time remembered that their precocious third child was often in trouble at home, and Dr. Linehan recalls feeling deeply inadequate compared with her attractive and accomplished siblings. But whatever currents of distress ran under the surface, no one took much notice until she was bedridden with headaches in her senior year of high school. <clears throat> her younger sister, Aline Haynes, said, this was Tulsa in the 1960s, and I don't think my parents had any idea what to do with Marcia. No one really knew what mental illness was. Soon, a local psychiatrist recommended a stay at the Institute of Living to get to the bottom of the problem. There, doctors gave her a diagnosis of schizophrenia, dosed her with Thorazine, Librium, other powerful drugs, as well as hours of Freudian analysis, strapped her down for electroshock treatments, 11 shocks the first time and 16 the second, according to her medical records. Nothing changed, and soon enough, the patient was back in seclusion in the locked ward. <clears throat> a discharge summary dated May 31st, 1963, noted that during 26 months of hospitalization, Ms. Linehan was, for a considerable part of this time, one of the most disturbed patients in the hospital. <clears throat> she says about it, I was in hell, and I made a vow when I get out, I'm going to come back and get others out of here. <clears throat> this is a bodhisattva vow. <clears throat> when we are suffering, so remarkable, we can realize that others are suffering as well. We don't work on ourselves just to relieve our own pain but in order to help the pain that we see all around us. <clears throat> After her release, 20 years old, when she left, doctors gave little chance of her surviving outside the hospital. She did, of course, but there was at least one more suicide attempt. 
And then another one after she had moved to Chicago, <clears throat> staying in a YMCA. And she was hospitalized again, came out confused, lonely, and more committed to ever to her Catholic faith. And she prayed often at a chapel <clears throat> nearby, near to Loyola University, where she was taking night classes. Then one night I was kneeling in there, looking up at the cross, and the whole place became gold. Suddenly I felt something coming toward me. It was this shimmering experience. And I just ran back to my room and said, I love myself. It was the first time I remember talking to myself in the first person. I felt transformed. <clears throat> the high lasted about a year. So quite an experience before the feelings of devastation returned in the wake of a romance that had ended. But something was different. She could now weather her emotional storms without cutting or harming herself. What had changed? It took years of study in psychology. She earned a PhD at Loyola in 1971 before she found an answer. On the surface, it seemed obvious. She had accepted herself as she was. She had tried to kill herself so many times because the gulf between the person she wanted to be and the person she was left her desperate, hopeless, deeply homesick for a life she would never know. That gulf was real and unbridgeable. <clears throat> that basic idea, radical acceptance as she now calls it, and as far as I know, Marshall Linehan is the first person to use that term. Maybe someone else did it, but... It's quite popular now, but as far as I know, it goes back to, to her work. Radical acceptance became increasingly important as she began working with patients, first at a suicide clinic in Buffalo and later as a researcher. <clears throat> she found that real change was possible, that acting differently can in time alter underlying emotions from the top down. <clears throat> so behaviorism teaches. But deeply suicidal people have tried to change a million times and failed. The only way to get through to them was to acknowledge that their behavior made sense. Thoughts of death were sweet release given what they were suffering. She was very creative with people, said, uh, I guess, somebody who, was, uh, who had admitted her into the postdoctoral program. Very creative. I saw that right away. She could get people off center, challenge them with things they didn't want to hear without making them feel put down. Dr. Linehan was closing in on two seemingly opposed principles that could form the basis of a treatment. Acceptance of life as it is not as it is supposed to be, and the need to change, despite that reality and because of it. <clears throat> this is something that applies to all of us. We need to accept ourselves as we are. We need to accept circumstances as they are. And when we do that, then we can work for change. 
need to forgive ourselves. need to give the kid a break. So this article was written shortly after uh, Dr. Linehan, Marsha Linehan, went public with her own diagnosis. Did it for the sake of all the other people with that diagnosis, which usually means you're going to be written off as untreatable. So Dr. Linehan has reached a place where she can stand up and tell her story, come what will. I'm a very happy person now, she said in an interview at her house near campus. I still have ups and downs, of course, but I think no more than anyone else. This is the promise of this practice, of being able to know what's going on in the mind, to welcome, as they say, welcome our afflictions. Something all of us will need to do during Sashin. It's never completely smooth. If it is, there's something wrong. It totally goes contrary to all our instincts want to push bad things away. We want to grab pleasant things closer. Instead, we need to open up. Gwogu says, we need to learn to expose, embrace, and transform the emotional afflictions and negative habitual patterns, the root of which is self-grasping. Okay, we've reached a point where we need to stop, so we will, and recite the four vows. (laughs) 